Father, thank you so much again for this place to gather and to study your word. I thank you for these women that we get to journey with. I thank you that um, their lives point me to you and that we have the opportunity to link arms and to come alongside one another um, as we walk toward you. Holy Spirit, would you come into this place and guide us into all truth? Would you calm our hearts and minds and allow us to focus on you and not be distracted uh, by the things that we are, um, that our minds are taken up with uh, even so far this morning? Would you use this time for your glory, lift your name high, and we will be sure and certain to give you all the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, true confessions. Um, I struggled with this lesson, and um, I kept getting tripped up on the parts that I didn't understand. Um, I read a lot of commentaries, and quite frankly, I felt like they just kind of kept muddying the waters for me. So um, I was so distracted and I was having such a difficult time with this that over the last few weeks during my dedicated study time, I did really important things like creating a list of possible birthday gifts for myself. My birthday is in June. Um, or changing my Bitmoji so that it had just the right amount of gray showing. Um, or organizing my thoughts in several different spreadsheets. Can you tell I was avoiding what I felt to be a difficult lesson? So before we open up Romans 11, 11 through 36, I want to spend a few minutes explaining my experience with this text in hopes that it might help all of us, not only for this text, but also for other difficult texts that we will all engage at some point in Scripture when we're studying scripture. So it only took a few readings of this passage for me to realize I was going to struggle. So I began to remind myself of a few strategies that I've been taught to use when I encounter something in scripture that is hard for me to understand. First, I remembered that I wasn't to get lost in the details. I needed to keep my eyes on Jesus and what I know about him. Keep asking the Holy Spirit to uh, reveal the truth of this passage. And I needed to keep trusting. Um, it all goes back to choosing to trust God rather than lean on, lean on my own understanding. As soon as my beliefs come from um, me figuring it out, then it's no longer about trust and grace. It devolves into work again. Secondly, I needed to remind myself of what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. So I've come to recognize that when I'm getting whipped up about a particular scripture or passage of scripture because of something that I don't understand, it's time for me to rest in the knowledge of God that I do understand and regroup before I take another stab at studying the passage that is troubling to me. Sometimes this is a good time to check out commentaries and other resources. Other times when I'm whipped up, 
it's time for me to close everything up and walk away from it for a while. Third, part of my struggling, my rest from struggling, is praying and inviting the Holy Spirit once again to calm my heart and mind and reveal to me the truth of the passage. And then taking up again the practice of quieting my soul and taking every thought captive. And that phrase, taking every thought captive from 2 Corinthians 10.5, literally, I take that to mean literally saying to myself, sometimes out loud, sometimes in my head, that God is trustworthy, that he is for my good, that his steadfast love never ceases, that his faithfulness never falters, that his character does not change. I don't do this to brush aside difficult passages of scripture, but rather to prepare myself again for the work of engaging with scripture. So as I came up to parts of this passage that were difficult to understand, I reminded myself of what I have already learned about God, about his character, and about his promises. Those reminders then served as guardrails for how I approached the confusing parts of this passage. So without further ado, let's look at Romans 11, 11 through 36. As I studied these verses over the last few weeks, I came to the conclusion that Paul is actually articulating in this chapter an aspect of the steadfast love of God, of the one true God. Because of that, the bottom line of this lesson is God's mercy is for anyone who trusts in him. Let me say that again. God's mercy is for anyone who trusts in him. Even though one of the points about engaging with the difficult passage I just mentioned, one of those points was to not get lost in the details, there are actually times when the details have to be addressed. And I think Paul was in one of those situations when he was writing this particular part of um, the letter to the Roman church. I think it's important for us to remember once again the context of the letter and who he's writing to, both Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus and Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus. At this time, when the, when the letter was being written, it was just a few years after the Jews were allowed to come back into Rome. And if you remember, during that time when the Jews had been expelled from Rome, the church in Rome probably became unmoored a little bit from its Jewish heritage and had probably stopped um, living out some of the Jewish traditions um, that the Jewish believers may, had, may have continued with even as they came to faith in the Lord Jesus. And so then when the Jewish believers came back into Rome, there was likely tension between the Gentile and the Jewish believers um, and questions of who really is, the, who really are the people of God, who really needs grace. Um, and in this particular passage, this particular part of the letter to the Romans, um, Paul is addressing the possibility of Gentile arrogance, just like he has already addressed the possibility of Jewish arrogance in Romans chapter 2. So let me read Romans 11, 11 through 15. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as... Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Did the Jewish people stumble beyond recovery? That's what Paul is asking in this section, and he answers himself with an emphatic no. He reminds us that their, the Jewish people's trespass, their hardening of their hearts, their following after idols, that meant salvation for the Gentiles. That opened the door for the Gentiles to uh, be welcomed into the people of God. And if their, reconcili- if their trespass meant salvation for the Gentiles, then Paul says, Can we even imagine what their reconciliation with God will mean for the entire world? Let's go down to verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This verse presented one of the more difficult parts for me. If the dough is offered, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, the whole lump is holy. This dough illustration finds its origins in Numbers 15, 17 through 21, in the, ordinance that, in the ordinances that God gives to the people of Israel just before they're going into the promised land. It was difficult for me because I tended to get tangled up in whether this means that all people of Jewish ethnic descent will be saved, even those who never had a saving belief while on this earth. Um, But as I walked myself through the steps that I mentioned earlier, I came to settle in what Paul has already said about how anyone comes to a right relationship with God. One of the parts of this verse that made me kind of wrestle with that question was the fact that Paul says that since the the patriarchs of the uh, Jewish people were holy before God, then the whole of Israel would be holy, and that word holy was what tripped me up. But if you remember, the word holy means set apart. It does not necessarily mean righteous. So God has still set apart the people of Israel as his chosen people. Um, Even today, they are his chosen people, Um, and, and they are still considered holy in that they are set apart for him. That does not necessarily, and, and that would be, he set them apart as a group. That does not necessarily mean that all who have been set apart for him will necessarily respond to him in belief and truly become part of his family. Um, so it was important to me, again, to um, walk myself through what I know to be true about the one true God, what Paul has already talked to us about in his letter to the Romans before I could make myself go on past that verse. So then going on to verse 17, I'm going to read down through verse 24. 
But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, Paul is alluding to the fact that the people of Israel were set apart by God. They were chosen by him. They were his original um, stock, if you um, if we call it that. But here in this section, Paul elaborates on that branch's illustration. The Gentiles are grafted in, while some of the Jewish branches are cut off. This is where Paul digs into his charge and challenge to the Gentiles to not become prideful. Because if God broke off branches from those he had set apart as chosen, he can also do the same to the Gentiles. If, in fact, they show themselves to turn away from belief and turn away from trusting in his kindness. Let's go on to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." So this part of the passage was the hardest part for me to grasp. And during the process that I described earlier of how I walk through a difficult passage, I came to see some repeated words that shed a little more light on the meaning of these verses. So look back with me briefly at Romans 11, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And let me read once again verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that phrase in verse 12, full inclusion, and the word fullness in verse 25 um, are actually the same Greek word. And um, so with that understanding and um, understanding that there, we are currently in a time where the Gentiles are being grafted in, um, in the 
in the grand scheme of world history, we are currently in the time that Paul is referring to as the time when the Gentiles are being grafted in. Um, and so what he's saying is there will, be, there will be a time when the number of Gentiles has, has reached, its, reached its full. And so if we take that understanding from that word that's also referring to the nation of Israel in um, verse 12, there will be a time when the number of Jewish people will reach its full, a, number, um, a time when the number of Jewish people who come to faith in the one true God and trust him and not trust on their ethnic heritage or on the law, there will be a time when that number also reaches its full. Um, and so understanding that helped me then to consider that the, the phrase, all Israel will be saved, is likely to mean the same about the Jews as what Paul means when he says the full number of Gentiles will be saved. And so as I studied about this, I began to think of it this way. And just hang with me because it's not the best illustration. But here we go. So at first, there was a more clear opportunity for the people of, God, of Israel when God chose them as his people, a more clear opportunity for them to believe God and to be counted as righteous. They were his people. He gave them his law. He revealed himself to them. He showed himself to be faithful. He showed their stead, his steadfast love to them. Um, he never turned his back on them. Their opportunity, it was a clearer opportunity for the people of Israel to uh, trust in him. Um, and then their more clear opportunity was broken off because of their continued rebellion as a people group. And then the more, the more clear opportunity was shifted from the people of Israel to the Gentiles. And according to, to scripture, and in this time that we are, we are currently in this time of a more clear opportunity for Gentiles to come to faith in the one true God. And according to scripture, there will be a time in the future. We have not yet reached this time. There will be a time in the future when there will again be a more clear opportunity for the people of Israel to, um, to come to faith in the one true God and, um, and be saved. And many more people of Israel at that time, extraordinary amounts of people of Israel at that time will come to faith um, in the one true God and they will be um, grafted back. That's the grafting back in of the people of Israel into the tree. Um, so one thing with that um, explanation we need to remember is that we are talking about groups of people. We're talking about the group of the people of Israel who were given the first more clear opportunity. We're talking about the group of the Gentiles, um, which we're in this season now, where we're given a more clear opportunity. And then again, in the future, there will be um, a more clear opportunity for the group of Israel, of the, of the people, um, the Jewish people. However, even though there were groups, uh, there was time for a group, a group 
a group, um, there has always been examples of people from the out group coming to faith in the one true God. And um, so if we think of the first time when the people of Israel were given the more clear opportunity, um, we, can, we can name Ruth, um, the great-grandmother of David. She was a Moabitess. She was a Canaanite. Um, or she, she, was, she was a Gentile. Um, Rahab, the Canaanite woman from Jericho who hid the spies, she was a Canaanite woman. She was a Gentile. Um, we can, um, the Ninevites, when Jonah went and preached to them, they were Gentiles, and yet they came to faith in the one true God. And so even though they were not on inside the group of the people of Israel with their more clear opportunity, even when they didn't have a clear opportunity, God welcomes anyone in who recognizes that he is the one true God, and, um, and he gives them the opportunity, even if it's not clear, he gives them the opportunity to come to know him. We can also look at this time of the Gentiles' more clear opportunity, and we can know absolutely that there are many, many people over the last 2,000 years who are of Jewish descent, who are ethnically Jewish, who were maybe raised in the religion of Judaism, who have come to believe in the one true God and to know that he has sent his Messiah um, in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and, and God welcomes them in, even though it's not their turn right now. Um, and so even when the world, um, when history moves into that time, where it will be another more clear opportunity for Jews to um, come to faith in the one true God, there will still be opportunity for Gentiles also to be included in the one true God. So if that still throws you, let's ask ourselves again the question, what has Paul said previously about how anyone receives right standing with God? It is by trusting, believing him as the one true God. Anyone who is in right standing with God is in right standing with God because God provided the way for that right standing. And that individual chose to trust God's way and not lean on their own way. It was not due to ethnic heritage or ability to, to follow the law. Right standing with God comes only through trust in him. So as we consider what Paul means when he says that all of Israel will be saved, we need to keep in mind that God has had the same criteria for right standing with him from the beginning. God doesn't change. So let's... Um, Continue reading in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of, of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So this is where Paul highlights God's steadfast love. 
The first time in scripture that God describes himself is in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and I'm going to read a portion of that for us. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This passage is a declaration of his name and of his character. Because of who the one true God is, history is structured to highlight the mercy of God. He saved the Gentiles when everyone expected that only the Jews could be saved. And he will surprise us all again when in the end, many more Jewish people, extraordinary numbers of Jewish people will come to the one true God and be saved. All of this underscores God's mercy. It is only by his mercy that anyone is brought to salvation. Let's read that Exodus passage again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It is this God who saves, who shows mercy, who grafts in those who trust in him, who forgives, who washes clean those who recognize their need for him. Is this who you know God to be? Do you know your need of him? Has Paul's message of our deserved punishment rung true with you? If so, then you are where God wants you to be. Look up and recognize that his mercy is for you. His steadfast love searches for us and then binds us to him when we trust in him. As I said earlier, the bottom line of this lesson is God's mercy is for everyone who trusts him. If you don't remember anything else about Romans 11, 11 through 36, remember that God's mercy is for anyone who trusts him. As Lee Summerall stated at the end of the homework lesson, is everything clear now? No? Not for me either. What is clear is that God is way smarter than any of us could ever imagine. And he knows the exact way to be true to his character and true to his promises at the same time. And even if I don't understand how those two can coexist without conflict or contradiction, I can know that God is trustworthy and will always be trustworthy because he promises to never change. If you are like me, you are probably taking a deep breath that we're about finished with this section of Romans. I think that Paul also breathed a deep sigh of relief as he and his co-workers concluded this segment of their letter. We can hear it as we read this beautiful doxology. And really, there's no better way to finish our time together this morning than for me to read those last four verses. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.